Welcome to the OmniTalk Fast Five, sponsored by Takeoff, the AM Consumer and Retail Group, and Manhattan Associates. The OmniTalk Fast Five is the funniest, fastest, and most fervently insightful breakdown of all the week's top news in the world of retail, and also the podcast with the best alliteration. We deliver insight, inspiration, and imagination like no other podcast in the business, and especially today, because today is May 27, 2021. I am your host, Chris Walton, joined as always by the illustrious Anne Mazenga and our very special guests back for their recurring monthly segment in their OmniTalk tour of duty, the AM Consumer Retail Group. And so Anne and I are pleased to welcome Kristen Kohler Burroughs and an OmniTalk first timer, Chad Lusk. How are you all today? Chad, how are you feeling? Oh, just fantastic. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm giddy to be here, Chris. Scale of one to ten, like we're on the trepidation scale, one being low, ten being high. Where, what are you feeling right now? So I'm, um, I'm, I'm a ten on excitement. Um, okay. You know, I've been working with you guys since what the beginning of the year here in our, oh, yeah, least, our partnership. Yeah. Uh, I've always been behind the scenes with you, talking with you guys, spitballing with Kristen and Dave Ritter, who we've had on a couple times. We bat around the put you on the spot question, trying to push you, guess how you react. But it's good to be on this side of the mic. It's yeah. uh. A little nerve wracking. I'm probably a probably a five or six on nerves, but uh, but I'm but I'm but I'm ten unmotivated. You know, I have to say, ten Nothing. unmotivated. Okay, we're gonna try to get you up to we're gonna try to get you up to an eleven. But you know, by the time by the time we get started here, Kristen, this is your second go round. How are you feeling? I'm feeling I'm feeling giddy too. I'm ready. Are you all right? And what are you thinking? We've got what do you think with these two here? You know, you think we're gonna be they're gonna be able to carry the weight here on the show tonight? There's a lot oh. going on. There is we've a got lot a, going on in the world. We've got a power pack show to send everybody into uh, Memorial Day weekend in style. So I think it, we could not have better company, Chris. Yeah. And there's some heady topics too. So I cannot wait to get the opinion of AM on on many of them. So, all right, well, let's get right to it because I think with four of us on the show today, there's a lot of cool ground to cover. So let's start building that momentum. And of course, when I say momentum, I'm speaking about Manhattan's Momentum Connect event, which took place this week. And for those of you that know, I actually keynoted the event right before this, literally just got done doing that. And it was standing Zoom only, as I like to call it, because I have no (laughs) idea what that means, but I'll take credit for it. Uh, And I also just released one of my favorite articles uh, recently, uh, and I love the title. And I don't know if you saw this, but it's called There's No Difference Between Purgatory and Hell When Talking Cloud Commerce. I just put that out on social media. You guys can see that. It's also on the blog. Uh, check it out. It's one of my favorite articles I've written in a really long time. Had a total blast uh, writing it. And the you article, read it, I think, at a baseball game last night. Right? I, I sure did. I read it at a baseball game. And while the title may seem dark, the content is not. It is very enlightening. It's yeah. anything but. I got astronauts, the Wright brothers, all kinds of stuff going on in that story. It's it's entertaining. It's entertaining as hell. And it actually it hopefully is informative about cloud commerce, too. So Anyway, all right, well, let's get started. Today's show is going to be great. We've got a real humdinger for Chad's giddy up today. Amazon is staring down the barrel of its first antitrust case. There's a German startup called Gorillas that is launching a 10-minute delivery program in New York City. Kroger is now shipping to areas in Florida, believe it or not, where it does not even have stores. And sporting goods manufacturer Wilson is also planned to open its own physical stores for the first time. But we start, as we always do, we take off with Amazon buying MGM and... In a world where Amazon... Oh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, in, what se- music? 
in what CNBC is calling Amazon's most ambitious move in the entertainment industry, Amazon has confirmed that they will acquire MGM Studios for $8.5 billion. Uh, the deal is Amazon's second largest acquisition after the $13 billion they paid for Whole Foods back in 2017. And Amazon is hoping to leverage MGM's catalog of 4,000 films and 17,000 TV shows to help bolster Amazon Studios' film and TV division. Chris, you're the movie buff of this group. Uh, what what do you think about this? Are you pretty pumped? You've been like making comparisons, Jeff Bezos and Bond, like everybody's talking <laughs> about this. What do you think? I have to go to you first. I mean, I think it's super cool. I mean, I think, you know, kudos to Amazon for all the pushes they're putting in entertainment. Something friend of Omni talking about Bowen sent us, uh, sent me this morning too. Keep in mind the price tag on this. This is actually less than Amazon paid for the broadcasting rights to the NFL. So I don't actually think this is even that aggressive of a move when you put it in that perspective, but you get all the reasons like why they would do it in terms of prime prime video, just the continued evolution of streaming. I think that's really interesting. I mean, the point I'd love to hear, maybe, maybe Chad is the first time I bring you in on this too, but what I've been starting to think about a lot more in relation to Netflix is what is the value of old content versus new content and what keeps you in this subscription? That's a question that I think is starting to become more prevalent. Because as I personally go on to Netflix more and more as sample size of one, I know, but I'm finding that there isn't as much content from the old catalogs that I want to watch as there used to be. And that's starting to become problematic. So I'm wondering as the studios start to grab hold of things, Disney, MGM now with Amazon, others, if that's going to become more of a problem for Netflix. But, but Chad, maybe what do you think here? Yeah, I, so I can't help by starting by just starting with the, the names Bezos. Jeff Bezos, right? I mean, like it just that. I mean, this is fascinating, right? Like the war on content intensifies. Like, you know, it shows that we're pretty far down a path where most major media content will come from either Disney, Netflix, or Amazon. I mean, who doesn't believe over time that the the peacocks of the world and and uh, and who? Well, Disney already owns Hulu, right? This is what I mean. Like those three will gobble up everything. So, you know, is Bond and what else do they have? Rocky series, Handmaid's yeah. Tale. Like, is it worth eight and a half billion? Like, I don't know my media valuations well enough to say that. And hasn't MGM like been bought and sold like a dozen times in the last couple of decades? But, but I agree. Like, I think the value here would be in the future original content versus the old. Um, but, you know, what's interesting to me here to kind of put a retail spin on it is like the continued vertical integration. Like there's this overall merging of the content and the distribution and those who will win have both, right? It's akin to owning the brand and retail. Like we'll talk about this later with Wilson. So for me, the story is around garnering that scale, being able to put new original content against it where probably the real money is and then owning the entire value stream and the exposure if you don't have either. So for you, same plays with the NFL, like just further surround sound around commerce and just bringing all of those experiences together. Kristen, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I echo um, what Chad said. I guess, you know, one of my thoughts is it's Bezos, right? Why didn't he go big and do Time Warner? I, I mean, mm-hmm. if he's going to go big, go big. Um, and then it made me think, you know, we we agree and we see this vertical, integ- vertical integration of media, right? From, from the platform to the content. So then why didn't AT&T and Time Warner work? Um and I guess, you know, when we talked about it and reflected on it a little bit, 
is it because although they own the pipes, right, they don't actually own the customer facing platform. So in this case, Amazon, you know, does have that customer face, customer facing platform, whereas AT&T did not. Mm -hmm. Um, So then you'll see Time Warner and Discovery, you know, are, how is the, how, what's going to happen with that? And are they going to need, what's their more customer facing platform going to be? Yeah, that's going to be fascinating to watch the real estate on that front facing customer platform and, and who grabs it and who doesn't. And you've always got interesting like takes to these types of things. That's why I love working with you. Like what, what are you thinking about on the sidelines as, as you listen to everyone describe their initial thoughts here? Well, I mean, I'm more concerned about, you know, what's what happened in the span of one week this past week. I mean, they're talking about they acquired MGM. They're getting into pharmacies now, apparently. They're <laughs> opening more fresh stores. Like, oh, my God. I know I was I posted, I think, on LinkedIn, like my I'm buying stock in Reynolds Wrap because, you know, me and Carl Boutet, we're going to like wrap an entire compound in foil after all these announcements and the, the sidewalk, the Amazon sidewalk launching this week, too. Like, there's a lot going on here. And the more I mean, we'll get into it in the next story. But the more that they're in control of, uh, the more I guess I would say I start to get concerned about who who really uh, is in charge here and, and how much choice the customer really has. So real quick, I so okay, real quick on that. I think real quick question I have for the group, maybe just around the horn, real quick. Uh, do you think this signals the eventual kind of death knell of the traditional movie release in theaters that it becomes now more of a, a streaming first experience for people inside of their homes? Is that where we're going? Chad, let's start with you. Um, I don't think this signals that, but I think we are going to see more of the kind of dual launch, which is kind of happening now. What about you, Kristen? Yeah, I agree. I mean, even though my sons keep insisting that Wonder Woman 2 was the worst movie of the year, uh, I had them sitting in our living room with piles of, you know, popcorn all over the floor watching it when it came out just like we did with God's the Godzilla movie um which ended up being a dual release so I agree with Chad I think it's just it's going to be this does not signal it but I think what we are seeing is new releases coming out on both platforms you see the movie move that direction and you were shaking your head a little bit and do you think so or not yeah, hundred percent. I think yeah. like everything, like we can't, it's not going to be the same as it was before the pandemic's gotten people more comfortable with viewing the movies, how they want to, when they want to. And that's going to be in both places. That's what I think is stage one. So interesting about this. I think, you know, the the old, I'd say movie infrastructure, so to speak, was, was in a lot of ways, it's just filled with a ton of friction and in, quite frankly, is quite overpriced. Like going to a movie is pretty expensive. So when you look at the value equation and the friction that you reduce from being able to stay at home, it could take a move like this from somebody like an Amazon to say, okay, we're now going to kind of push us over the threshold of that real quick though. The stage two for me, if you're a big fan of the movie graduate, I know you guys have seen this movie. Remember when the guy pulls him aside, pulls, says, Ben, if you're going to invest in anything, it's plastics. For me, it's haptics. You'll see streaming. That's going to change the landscape of, of actual movie theaters. They're going to become very cheap to acquire, and Amazon's going to reinvent that as well. And it's probably going to be done by way of haptics and VR. More on that, hopefully, from us in OmniTalk in future episodes, because that stuff will absolutely blow your mind. All right. Now, let's move on to story number two. This one is huge. This week, the attorney general out of Washington, D.C., has sued Amazon on antitrust grounds, alleging that it's anti-competitive practices have illegally raised prices for consumers. 
So according to CNBC, here's what the lawsuit alleges. Essentially, if it is saying that if items were found to be of a lower price at competing retailers by way of marketplace sellers on Amazon, Amazon's algorithms would penalize those retailers and take away their real estate, so to speak, in the online space to penalize them, to not give as good placement as they would have, they would have otherwise received. Now, Amazon disagrees with the charges here. An Amazon spokesperson said on Tuesday, quote, the D.C. attorney general has it exactly backwards. Sellers set their own prices for the products they offer in our store, end quote. So, Chad, first timer, put you on the spot question. This is my favorite thing to do because you guys do it to us every single week. You get the tough one. Now, both you guys have pretty interesting backgrounds. Christian, you've been on the retail side. Chad, you've been on the brand side. So you get what this is all about. You guys have had some knowledge and skill and training around price regulations and what you can and cannot do in these situations. So based on what we're currently reading, what do you think here? Is the attorney general onto something? Uh, well, first of all, you guys know how to haze really well. <laughs> and, <laughs> this might be the toughest question we've ever had. <laughs> I mean, at least until the second question of my first podcast to do it. So I appreciate that. But yeah. Oh, boy. Um, Okay, so a little known fact. So I actually started my career in procurement and have worked through some most favored nation clauses in my day. Um, But listen, we're not antitrust advisors. So if the question is really like, are they onto something like, heck, yeah, because it smells funny, right? Like, we just talked about Amazon being a consolidator in the media space. And we're like, given their position in search, and as a marketplace provider, like if it smells funny, yeah, it's definitely worth putting Amazon under the microscope, right? And, and here's why. So coming from the CPG standpoint and like our clients, like, like there's concern here, right? So like, I feel, like they feel, our clients feel that it's harming open market competition. So if you think about it, right, by not allowing third-party sellers to offer lower prices anywhere else, like it's eliminating the opportunity for a real tiered channel pricing strategy it takes away meaningful liquidation opportunities out in the open market. Oh, right. It precludes from driving traffic to a brand's own website if they do direct to consumer because because I believe that's part of it as well, right? You can't have lower prices on your own site, which compresses right. margin opportunity for the brands as well. So, so I don't know if it's resulting in artificially high consumer prices, as the suit indicates, but it's allowing Amazon to set the floor. And it's funneling more traffic to them, which may or may not be good for the brands. And again, because it smells different, it's probably not, right? So so I look at this in terms of, well, where does this go, right? So again, prior to to CRG here, I was a CMO for a couple of different uh, CPG brands. And and we've seen this cross-channel price conflict play out before. And so this is kind of what I think could come out of it. So for instance, in, you know, kind of legacy brick and mortar, like, like Walmart doesn't want to be price, you know, beat price wise either. And they actually specifically scorecard CPG suppliers against it. So if Walmart provided sufficient enough scale for us, we responded with Walmart specific SKUs. And I think that's what could come out of this, depending on what happens with the suit, that sellers are effectively forced into Amazon specific SKUs that way to avoid the direct price comparisons, which of course muddies supply chains and manufacturing costs and all. So, so it's a, it's, it's, it's a deterrent. Yeah. Interesting. Kristen, what's your take on the retailer side? That's, you you know, and that's your background here prior to consulting. Now, what's your take from that lens? Well, I mean, similar to, as Chad mentioned, um, you know, as a retailer, what's my liquidation strategy? 
-hmm. you know, what's my off price strategy if, you know, if I have to offer the lowest price on Amazon. Um, and then, you know, then I think of it as if, 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 and, and we debated this, if price is sort of taken off the table as a customer criteria to purchase, because you know, Amazon is the lowest. Does it mean that I can only compete based on experience or almost a different good, better, best strategy with my merchandise assortment? Um, or does it mean price is even more important as a determining factor in my purchasing decision? And I'm only going to go to Amazon for that. Yeah. And I mean, consumers are only going to, right. I mean, consumers are only going to go there. That's probably why yeah. the search statistics are as high as they are, right? Like yeah. that we hear about all the time when you know what you want to buy, that's where you're going to go because this is happening. Yeah. Right? So that's, yeah. Yeah. Even when I say that out loud, that feels anti-competitive to me as I'm talking about this. Yeah. And what do you think? Well, I think the problem for me is that Amazon's argument is like, we'll just go somewhere else. If you don't like our, you know, if you don't want to sell on the platform, you don't like our, our rules, our 40% commission that we're taking that are causing you to place these prices at what they're at, then go to Walmart, go to Target's marketplace, go to Kroger's marketplace, go somewhere else. And I guess my question is, is that even a possibility for these SMBs? Is, is that something that they can do? I don't think so. And that's where I think this water, these waters start to get really muddy. In some ways it's like implicitly written into the contract is the way it's being described. Like if I was at Target and I literally said to somebody uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but like if I had said to a brand, like, look, if I see your price lower anywhere else, you will lose end cap space. Like if I deliberately said that, that would probably not have been okay. Like I cannot be dictating the prices I see at other retailers. That's anti-competitive. And by explicitly saying that there is an algorithm by which that is happening and actions are being taken off of that, that seems in conflict to that. And it seems in conflict to the rules by which other traditional retailers have operated for a a long time and for a good reason because it's to control market power from being used in that way. Chad, you're shaking your head. Yes, like it, it, that that feels essentially right yeah. to you. It, yeah, it, it does feel right. I mean, I think that line has been towed for a while for by sure. retailers, right? And so there's maybe the difference between explicit and implicit and how, how things play out over time. Um, mm. But 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 it does it does kind of cross that boundary line. And to go back to Anne's point, like I think there is something fundamentally different around this being in open marketplaces and the transparency of prices and kind of what that provides and how it changes the dynamic. Where it, this this does feel kind of uh, predatory and, and mon monopolistic based on the fact that they know the search parameters, like in the consumer behavior, is already filtering toward them. And so to Kristen's point earlier, they're absolutely capitalizing on the fact to say, take price out of the equation now. And because we are invested and we're delivering on the experience, that's what we can win now because no one else can beat us on this other dimension, which again, doesn't feel right. Yeah. And in traditional retail, things don't happen in real time like that, right? So even as you're saying, there's these different areas, it doesn't happen. The conversations don't happen like that. So it'll be like, you know, you'll have a line review and you'll look at it at a point in time and say, look, I'm taking into account all the different things in the marketplace Price may be one of those, but I might, I'm might i probably not even explicitly talking about that. I'm talking about it in general. And as a result of all those things, these actions I'm taking for the next year, the next six months or whatever, whereas this is happening in real time, almost in a way like it's punitive, which is really fascinating to me. I'm going to take us into story number three, you guys. So Gorillas, the ultra fast delivery operator from Germany, plans to make its U.S. debut in select broken New York neighborhoods this month. They will be doing 
10-minute delivery for a low, low fee of $1.80 with no minimum purchase required. Customers can order one item or a basket of goods. There are some weight limitations, however, because these are delivered by bicycle, uh, but each warehouse will hold about 2,000 to 2,500 items ranging from fresh produce and milk to cat litter. Three things that I don't know that I would ever want to have come in the same package. Uh, they'll be competing directly with Fridge No More, a startup that also delivers groceries within 15 minutes to similar parts of Brooklyn. Uh, and also some recent news that we heard today from Instacart, also starting 30-minute grocery delivery. Kristen, I would love to start with you and get your thoughts on this. What do you think? What's going on here? Well, to me... Is this really about sort of the gorillas go puffs of the world versus the Instacart door dashes, right? Or because the, the value, the customer value proposition, you're going to get it faster from gorilla, faster from go puff than DoorDash, right? Um, that so, but but by minutes, I don't think it's it's not a huge difference. So to me, it's really like what business model versus customer value proposition is more sustaining and long term. And the GoPuffs and Gorillas, my assumption is that they're making money off of the product sale, the purchase versus the delivery, right? There's no margin <laughs> in the delivery. So to me, they're going to go the distance versus the DoorDashes and the Instacarts. You know, th there's just not a lot of margin there that I think that long term, the more successful businesses will be of the Gorillas and the GoPuff side. Fascinating, interesting. That's really interesting too, because Anne, you saw some. You you sent me a uh, message this morning of a similar announcement in this space. Like, what did you see? That, didn't something happen this morning in terms of like Instacart? Yeah, so Instacart this week they announced both a, an expanded partnership with Seven Eleven to do thirty minute convenience delivery. But then this morning, as I alluded to earlier, they announced that they will be doing grocery item delivery. Um, within 30 minutes. So I think when you start to look at all the competitors in this space, um, you know, Instacart wasn't there before. They were saying, you know, here's the drop-off point in the time for each one of your, your items, whether it's convenience or Sephora or Best Buy. And now it's, it's getting shorter and shorter. And the range of retailers that Instacart works with is, is much greater. The products they can provide are much greater than some of these other smaller um, competitors. I think the thing to keep in mind, and I was on a, a commercial real estate clubhouse call this morning talking about this. And um, on that, they mentioned that GoPuff is actually one of the most aggressive uh, seekers of property in the suburbs, um, not in these dense urban locations. So I think when we start to talk about, like Kristen's alluding to, where this is going and who's really going to win in this space, I think we're seeing this happen in urban cores, which makes sense. They have the ability to deliver with these shorter time periods. But what starts to happen when you start to scale this and it starts to, you see this demand in the suburbs where, you know, 10-minute bicycle delivery, right, yeah. it's not possible. Yeah. So. And I think for the for the GoPuffs and Gorillas of the world, it, the success is really dependent on their merchandise mix in that warehouse, right? And can they really have the right assortment to service that area? That, right. that's, that's, so that's fascinating. So like you're thinking, so that those are some really interesting points you're bringing in. So kind of, that's why you're leaning towards that side of the model, Chris. Like Chad, what do you think? Man, I, I love this. Um, as, as my wife would say, I love this so hard. Like I, so what Ann just brought up on the, the, the 
delivery into suburban stuff actually is really interesting because because my first thought was like, okay, I don't know how scalable this is, right. you know, where it would be available outside of densely populated urban areas. Like I'm probably not getting a bike courier to my Chicago suburban home. But but irrespective of that, like let's pretend for a minute you live somewhere where this exists, right? Like as a consumer, like I'm all in. Think about the use cases, right? Like yeah. you're making dinner and you discover that you're, you know, you're some crucial ingredient short. Um yeah, and like cat needs litter pronto, like bang, like or you're having a hankering for something right now, right? Like this 10-minute window satisfies the convenience of traditional grocery deliver, but it also delivers on immediacy, which is just huge, right? So I've worked at two sweet snacking brand companies. Like e-com certainly was growing pre-pandemic, obviously post, but it still represented a small portion of sales because of the impulsive, immediate consumption nature of the eating occasion, right? So if I'm a brand leader for those kind of snacking companies right now, I'm even more in love with this and anything that further reduces the overall lead time between craving and getting food in my mouth, right? And so this Mm -hmm. is a channel where if I'm in those kind of categories, I might actually be able to over-index in e-com. So big fan. That's a fascinating point too, because like it's like we don't actually know the balance of what should be in those warehouses yet either. That's still territory that hasn't been mined and thought through. So, Chris, I see you shaking your head there too, because there's a lot of naysayers. This topic, especially like when you look at social media every week, as we do, there's a lot of naysayers. Like, there's one guy I can think of in particular who they they just get on and they just they piss all over this in terms of like the economics of it and how it's never going to work and blah blah blah. But Christian, you're shaking your head because it seems like you're thinking like maybe there is some mix to figure out. You can control the inventory. You can get the margin there. You can get the delivery service fee. And people will want this even in the suburbs. Is that is that what's going through your head right now? As I'm yeah, I think, you the, I think the, the economics have a higher upside potential, right? But it is very asset heavy, right? You're going to own warehouse space or rent warehouse space. You've got to purchase the products. You better make sure you have the right product, the right assortment. But if you have that, correct, then I see a lot more margin in this business than basically, you know, the Uber or DoorDashes of the world. Or going in and doing the yeah. picking at another location. And is this something you would do? Like, is 30, does 30 minutes matter to you? It sounds like it does to, to Chad and Kristen. Like, do you yeah. think 30 minutes or less, the pizza delivery timing or 15, 10, whatever the hell Gorillas is doing? Like, does that matter? Well, I think it matters more when you start to think outside of of the traditional college yeah. or urban setting, you know, yeah. like that's what's going to change. The customer mindset is going to continue yeah. to change. And again, I'm going to bring Instacart back into this because Instacart does have all of that data. They yeah. know what should be going in the warehouses. Yeah. They've been dr- delivering products from a variety of companies and they will know what needs to go into these spaces. And so I think that, you know, all it's it's so much more than just, you know, do I want 30 minute delivery or not. Mm-hmm. Chad, what were you say? Uh, just, just one other thought on this. Like there's a subtext in the article around the fact that these are actually going to be gorillas, which I wish was with a Z because it hurts the nineties. Yes. I spelled it gorillas too. I was like, yes, go gorillas. Okay. Little, sorry. little, little Clint Eastwood. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, but but the fact that that they are utilizing an, an employee base of their own versus gig workers, I think is really interesting in terms of how they're thinking about the model as well. And, you know, to go back to some of Kristen's points around profitability and, and scalability, I think that's a, it's an interesting piece in terms of how they're going to go about it different than the Instacarts of the world. Yeah, I don't have I don't have anything to add on this, I think. I think the one 
thing I would say is that there was a, I, I mentioned the piece I wrote earlier in the beginning, like there was, there was a really cool keynote I watched with a NASA engineer and he talked about how flight learning to fly was actually probably one of the most impractical things you could ever try to do. Right. There, you were anyone who tried it, they were going to get hurt. Some people died, but it's actually the impracticality of things that inspires innovation for us to test the bounds and understand what our potential could be. And so this is where I always caution all of the naysayers on social media about how things won't work, because there's enough interest about can we unlock the potential of what's here for what seems impractical to become practical in this regard. And I think you guys are talking incredibly articulately from my perspective, just listening in terms of like how that actually might start to play out. And there are territories here that are completely unexplored. All right, let's keep moving because another area that I think is really fascinating on that, on that lines is what happened with Kroger this week. I think this could probably be the most important story too. There's a lot of important stories here, but Kroger, believe it or not, based on their relationship with Okado, again, Okado, for those not familiar, automated large scale warehouses, you're talking 30, $50 million plus in size. They are now attacking the Tampa, Florida market, according to Winsight, with a automated fulfillment center. And Kroger does not have stores in that location. This is all part of Kroger's plan to double their online sales and to double their online profitability here by 2023. Huge move for Kroger to get into a space where they don't even have stores. Kristen, shaking your head. What do you think? Well, you know, I, I always look at things from the customer lens and the customer perspective first. And I love my regional grocery store that I go to every week. I supplement that with fresh direct delivery. These are known entities, but I go to them for different reasons. I don't know why I would go to a Kroger if I don't have any familiarity with it. And so I wonder what their customer acquisition costs are going to look like. Mm. And if the customer is really going to buy into it, like why Kroger? Why? Why? Why Kroger? That's a good why idea. is it going to be different? And I have a feeling, Ann, you probably hate this story because I like this story a lot. What do you think here? I think this is a cool story. I think it's a cool oh, move by that. I've come around. Uh, oh, Kroger, really? Kroger uh, is doing some ninja stuff here. Let's just talk about the fact that while they don't have a label, they are heavily invested in Lucky's Markets, which do have a presence in Florida and have been ever since 2016 mm. because Publix, the big player in Florida, was like, no, Kroger, you're not getting in here. And now Kroger's like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go in and we're going to do some ninja stuff. We're going to go start doing direct-to-consumer delivery. They had this big kickoff at Pride, which, you know, that's one you know tactic i guess in the yeah. overall how do i get more customers but i right. i think when you start to think about the the shift of population too and there are younger people that are coming into florida who will be more um i guess accepting of direct to consumer grocery delivery than maybe some of the people who are Publix loyalists there right now. And I think that you start to, you know, go in there and offer more competitive pricing. You offer, you know, some of the the benefits that Kroger will get of just doing direct to consumer, not operating stores currently, but just doing this direct to consumer. And they might be able to beat people on price and, and, and with similar quality. So I say, go for it, Kroger, keep finding ways to work around it. Well, you did a 180. You didn't even want to include this story when we talked about it yesterday. But well, what about the substitution think- effect. I'm going to take it in a quick. I want to take it in a quick angle here to close it out. But like, what about the substitution effect? Because I think this is important. When we talk micro fulfillment. I think it's important. When we talk about avocado. Whereas when you're picking directly from the warehouse, you get the efficiency, right? But you yeah. also get the actual items that you're asking for, probably with a better likelihood, right? Because you're not dependent on 
you know, a third party picker to go in and find what you've asked for them to pick for you. So is there a there there, Chad? What do you think to close out the topic? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there is. I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen the pictures of what these Ocado fulfillment centers look like. I know that I remember seeing the first one out of their Ohio facility like six, eight weeks or so ago, bots storming around this 3D grid they call the hive. Like it's wild. I'd love to tour one, though I'd concerned I'd fall in and get picked and packed like some scene from Willy Wonka or something like that. But but no, I mean, I, I think you're onto something here. And actually, I'm going to tie it back to our put you on the spot question from last week, which if you recall was about uh, Target and uh, and it's kind of, you know, digital presence. And but, you know, the fact that 95 percent of their sales were still fulfilled by stores despite kind of their tremendous digital growth, right? And I really believe that that these kind of investments, these go-to-market models and these learnings can open the door for those non-store dependent fulfillment and grocery delivery in a much bigger way. And a lot of it is going right to what you're talking about, Chris, like eliminating that frustrating product swap out because of out of stocks, right? Um, crowded aisles in stores from pickers infringing on the in-store experience, right? Like, I'm, I don't know how it's going to play out in Florida. It's interesting. You know, there are some great points in there that, that Kristen is making around, you know, what does it look like to just be online? I mean, you're, you're effectively not omni-channel anymore. You're singular channel, but it's just mm-hmm. digital and not stores, which is right. interesting. It's flipping the script on, on traditional grocery. But like, no doubt the network of the future is a combination of kind of this ship from store, micro-fulfillment, third-party BOPIS, in-store or whatever. Um, so there's an efficiency play there. There's a profitability play there. Uh, and there's an experience play there. It just comes at a heavy price tag. These things are like $125 million CapEx investments. So, you know, I, I like it in, in Kroger geographies uh, more than maybe kind of the Florida where they don't have it because you got to create a lot of scale to make it work. Yeah, but this is why I love doing the show because what you, you see is patterns start to emerging to start to emerge over time, right? And so, like, yeah, I agree with your point. Like, these are probably only you can probably only do these in certain geographic densities. But then, as Christian brought up in the last section, you've got like it actually probably makes sense to own this type of facility. It's why we partnered with Takeoff too. Probably makes sense to own some type of distribution facility to make this all happen for the long run, so you can so that all of what we've been describing can happen more fluidly, more efficiently, and from a, at the end of the day, a better customer experience. That, that target metric, actually, it's one of the worst metrics that's out there right now because I think it obfuscates what's really actually going on and where you want things to go. Like, I don't actually care about how much you're picking from your stores. Like, I care about how you're picking it from your stores, right? Or how, where your volume's coming from. So much of that, that claim is based on just the fact they still sell a lot of stuff out of their stores, you know, because that's technically fulfillment. Like, that doesn't matter. The points you're getting at, Chad and Kristen, are like, where are you fulfilling it? How? Where's the growth coming from? Where are the great net promoter scores off of those experiences so you can continue to evolve? It got, it's funny to see how all these things are tying together. All right, and let's close it up here with the, with uh, number five. Okay. So where's Wilson- Pete Sampras when I need him? Oh, well, maybe at the Wilson Sporting Goods first ever retail location that they'll be opening this year in key markets that include Chicago, New York, Beijing, and Shanghai, with more to be added later. So better known by some for their sports equipment, Wilson has recently launched another line called Wilson Sportswear, which is a lifestyle athletic apparel line for men and women that will be sold direct to consumers via their websites. And they're going to be selling them in these new stores um, where customers will be able to 
shop for the clothes and then also do some in-store um, engagement with some of the Wilson Sporting Equipment. Also, special collaborations and product drops. Uh, what do you guys think? Chad, you want to go first? Um, sure, I'd love to. Um, so I'll say I'm surprised. Uh, I would not have assumed that Wilson had the customer base to kind of make this move. Uh, obviously, Nike's been on the forefront of this, going as far as to pull back wholesale relationships, control more of their own destiny, Adidas and Reebok, and stated their intentions to follow suit. So there's the trend, there's value there, own the brand, own the distribution. Now, I don't expect Wilson to start pulling out of wholesalers, but, but still, the move kind of surprised me. That said, um, to give a very anism here, it's worth the experiment, right? So there's, there's a lot going on, like launching stores, but also in this headline is around launching this Wilson sportswear brand. Um, so given what I can only assume is a reliance on equipment today, sounds like these stores would really need to bring some kind of experience of immersing yourself in the equipment. Like, what does that mean? batting cages, tennis simulators, soccer nets. Like I have no idea because does this work if the sportswear brand doesn't, right? Cause then you're all, then you're all equipment. Like I don't see Spalding stores or Rawling stores. I don't even see Callaway stores for the golf enthusiasts, right? What did Callaway do? Callaway went and merged with Topgolf. It didn't give them stores. It gave them venues. And I assure you there's all kinds of Callaway apparel and the lobbies of those now, but immersive experiences with the incredible consumer reach that Top Golf gives you. So I think you'd have to lean on that direction in order to in order to make it work. Yeah, you're bringing up a good point there too, because like and I think people miss this a lot. Like do stores matter because the store itself matters as part of how the business model works? Or are they just working because the brand in and of itself is working? And now therefore is there's a distribution outlet for that. Those are two really different things. Kristen, do you take the Anne side of this argument, which Anne hasn't even got to say whether or not that's her argument yet, but let's just pretend for the sake of argument that it is Anne's argument. We'll go to her in a second. But do you do you take the Anne's side there? Because you've been on this side of the, the equation, again, on the retail side. Like, do you, do you think it's worth the experiment? Like, hey, it sounds like if I take Chad's extrapolation here, like build a few flagship stores, try to build a brand around apparel and equipment and, you know, see if I can do, you know, what's hot right now, you know, in the space. Like, do you... Do you think it's worth that? I mean, I can't wait to hear Anne's opinion, but I will give you mine <laughs> first. So, I hear it all the time. <laughs> as, as a brand, does Wilson really have the permission to go from equipment to apparel? Like, right. I, good I, question. Big, big question. Um, second, if I want to experiment, look at all the commercial real estate that's out there. Do a pop-up. Test it. Don't invest in opening up all these stores. Um, you know, I, I I was a I was a varsity tennis player growing up. Princeton Prince was my racket. I Good never job. would have done Prince apparel. Like it just wasn't even. You know, there's just so many other players in this space too that do it well. So when I go back to does the brand have permission? It's like why Wilson sweatshirts? I mean, it just yeah, yeah. I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, between the two of us, you know, you're proverbially more streetwear than I am. So uh, do you so think? Street. Yeah, so do you think you're more street? Do you what do you think? Is, what do you what do you think here? Look, here's what I love about this. 
the the key the key places that they're experimenting with this there are a couple locations in the u.s but it's china and i think let's see what happens in the chinese market because apparently the chinese market is into wilson that had to go play into the inspiration for creating the sporting goods line and there are things that are coming back in style uh from hyper color to um you know high-waisted mom jeans that i'm just like wow these 80s and 90s trends that i never thought would come back are really emerging uh, at full strength. So I think we should see what happens. I think it's worth the experiment for, especially for the Chinese market. It's worth it. I think that's where I come out to. I think it's worth the control of the experiment, right? Like, yeah, especially given what we just, we see day to day, like there's so much money wasted in advertising and look, we're actually talking about this. So like, as long as they keep it smart and they keep it under control, it makes sense. But I think Christian, you brought up a good point too. Like the proof point is probably, can you build a brand online? Like lots of people are building brands online around apparel all the time. So make sure you can do that too, before you start heavily investing in real estate. Cause one probably does come before the other, as I'm sitting here thinking about this. Yeah. All right. Well, that, well, I'm, sorry, go so ahead. I'm sure they've sure they thought through this, but like really what can they bring to the table? That is a, is a point of difference. Um, Right. Versus just riding the trend, which, hey, we've been in retail a long time. We know we as much as we want that stuff to be thought through. Sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. Sometimes people are just trying to capitalize on the trend based on, you know, whatever they're seeing. All right. Well, that wraps us up. It's time now for some rapid fire questions to take the to take you, the audience home to bring you home. So here we go. First question. And yeah, Memorial Day weekend is upon us. What's the better beer, the lake beer or the post yard work beer? Toss up, but I got to go lake beer all the way. Lake beer. Chad. Can I say the post podcast beer? Because <laughs> it's, it's afternoon here sure. and I feel like I definitely just went through. No some. judgment. So, yeah. <laughs> Kristen. I do like Chad's style. My grandma used to always say it's five o'clock somewhere in the world, always, right? Yes. Um, but I go with I go with the lake beer. I'm you all about. Lake beer too. Yeah. So you yes. won't catch me dead on a lake. So like, I'm definitely the post yard work beer, but I also like Chad's answer with the anytime beer always works. All right, Chris, we just walked to the mall of America and it seemed like everyone in the mall was trying to hire people. McDonald's is even giving away iPhones to incentivize people to work there. If you were a retailer trying to hire in this market, what would your strategy be? That's a rapid fire question. You we have AM on. We have AM on today, and they get to ask long, very detailed questions because they are smart people. I'm I was trying to hold a candle to what kind of rapid fire question. They oh my might. god. Oh my god. All right. On the spot, here's what I'm thinking. If I'm Walmart, I pay people $15 an hour. That's my answer. That is my answer. All right. All right. Kristen, better role for Jeff Bezos in a, a James Bond flick. Evil Hedgeman or James Bond himself? Ooh. Well, I know he wants to play James Bond. You know he totally does. He totally does. <laughs> you know, I think he can he play both? He probably could. Oh, the yeah. dual role? Yeah, with the side-by-side so. -side camera angles? That would yeah. be amazing. That would yeah. be amazing. Wilson Phillips or Wilson from Castaway? Oh, totally. Wilson Phillips. Oh, my God. Obviously. 80s all the way. Obviously, obviously, right? Wilson from Castaway. I'm all there. Oh, man. Chad? Yeah. Someday somebody's going to turn around and make yes. you say goodbye. That's uh, right. After that singing, Chad, I feel like we need to tell people how they can get a hold of you. Uh, you can reach out directly to uh, either Kristen or I. So look me up on LinkedIn. Uh, my link will be in the, um, in the link of the show here, but it's Chad Lusk, L-U-S-K. 
Same thing, email is C-L-U-S-K at alvarezandmarcel.com. Hey, Burroughs at alvarezandmarcel.com. Uh, please reach out. Always up for a beer. Love it. All right. Well, that closes us up. Happy birthday today to Paul Bettany, Perry Gilpin from Frazier, and of course, Lewis Gossett Jr., a.k.a. Chappie, for all of you Iron Eagle fans out there who might actually also know the song that Chad just tried to say. <laughs> and remember, if you can only read or listen to one retail blog in the business, make it Omnitalk. Our Fast Five podcast is the quickest, fastest rundown of all the week's top news. And our twice-weekly newsletter tells you the top five things you need to know each day and also features special content exclusive to us and just for you, all within the preview pane of your inbox. Sign up today at www.omnitalk.blog. Thanks as always for listening in. Please remember to like and leave us a review wherever you happen to listen to your podcast or on YouTube. And of course, be careful out there. The OmniTalk Fast Five is brought to you with the help and support of the AM Consumer and Retail Group. The AM Consumer and Retail Group is a management consulting firm that tackles the most complex challenges and advances its clients, people, and communities towards their maximum potential. CRG brings their experience, tools, and operator-like pragmatism to help retailers and consumer products companies be on the right side of disruption. And also, Takeoff. Takeoff is transforming grocery by empowering grocers to thrive online. The key is micro-fulfillment, small robotic fulfillment centers that can be leveraged at a hyper-local scale. Takeoff also offers a robust software suite so grocers can seamlessly integrate the robotic solution into their existing businesses. To learn more, visit takeoff.com.